Well, good morning, church. Pleasure to have each and every one of you here. I ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning, to the book of Colossians as we continue in our series that we've entitled Preeminent, Learning What Christ's Place in This World is All About. And we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 6 through 10. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible. We want you to follow along and, and to see that, that what we teach here comes from uh, the scriptures. This isn't some uh, man-made idea, uh, but that as we work through word by word, verse by verse, you can see that, that you are learning from uh, the word of God. Grab that pew Bible and turn to page 984 page 984, and uh, we'll be here uh, our entire time, so you don't have to worry about getting lost in other passages of Scripture. You can camp out uh, there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask that you stand as you uh, grab that Bible and open up to uh, Colossians, that you would uh, uh, stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll ask a blessing on our time and jump right in to our message this morning. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father God, as we quiet our hearts now, I pray that the words of our final song would be our desire this morning, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that the events of this week, whether good or, or bad, might drift away so that we might see you clearly this morning, so that the events of last week and the events of this week will will be viewed in a different way through your eyes and, and, and through the way that you have called us to live. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed, we would be challenged by what your word has to say, that it would do its needed work because, Lord, we want to be more like you and, and, and less dependent on ourselves. So I pray you would speak through uh, this word to all of us this morning and that you might be brought glory as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you have known, as we've walked through uh, the first uh, chapter and a half, if you will, of the book of Colossians, we've seen that uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to a church in, in modern-day Turkey, a place called Colossae. And it's a place he had never visited before. Many of the people that he's writing to, he had never met. And yet he writes and shares his heartfelt love and concern for the people of this small church. He's gotten to know their pastor, Epaphras. And he begins to start learning about the situation that's going on in the city of Colossae. He finds himself learning that the city or the church at Colossae was dealing with some complicated things. False teachers had come in and began to propagate all kinds of gospels under the guise of wisdom and under the guise of, of, of fake godliness and as a result was leading people astray. There were people on one side, as we'll learn next week, that were saying the way that you get close to God was that you would live by a set of rules, a set of, of criteria, if you will, duty-bound um, activities, things like circumcision and baptism and, and, and saying no to certain foods and, and no to certain activities. That was all a, a list of rules. 
Then there was the other side of it that we're teaching that you, you, all that really mattered was the spirit. And that whatever you did with your bodies really didn't matter. So you could indulge in all kinds of immorality. You could involve yourself in all kinds of sins. And, and that's okay. And somewhere in the middle, the church at Colossae no doubt was raising up their hands and saying, this is too complicated. Where is the simple faith? Where is this uh, understanding of, uh, of following Jesus being easy? Well, just like in the days of the Colossian church, we find ourselves in difficult times, complicated times. Things aren't uh, black and white like they used to be. There's so many shades of gray, if you will, that we find ourselves struggling to know what does it mean to follow Christ. And we can waver between those two spectrums. We can uh, put ourselves focusing in on all these duties of doing all these right things and having our life in order um, in that way. Or we can say that following God and, and following Christ is, is more just an intellectual thing and it, it doesn't involve our lives and then we find ourselves living to all types of sin. Well, Paul writes something in our passage that's going to help alleviate some of that. For some of you who find yourselves living uh, with a complicated view of Christianity, Paul in these five verses is going to do what I say, he's going to bring about Christianity for dummies. Now, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I don't mean to slight anybody. But what I'm working off of is, is the set of books that we've all seen, no doubt, uh, that hundreds have been written, uh, the Four Dummies series. You've seen them. Go ahead and throw the slide up there. Uh, they've got all kinds of them. So uh, one of the ones that I know my parents could have used was the Internet for Dummies, okay? Don't tell my parents I said that. But they really struggled with understanding the Internet. And so you get a book that teaches you how to understand the ins and outs of, of the Internet. Uh, for, for all of us who are raising kids and learning that raising kids is an impossible task, there's Raising Smart Kids for Dummies, and that's, uh, that's a great book. We should uh, get more in that. For those who have a mole or a, or a uh, blemish that you don't like, you can read cosmic, Cosmetic Surgery for Dummies, and uh, that, that might be worthwhile for you. Uh, turn the thing, I've eaten some of your food, and I've got to be quite honest with you, there are some of you who could use that next book, Grilling for Dummies, Okay. Um, we want you to do a better job with that and the complication of, of grilling. I don't know if you know, but grilling is like brain surgery. Not everybody can do it, all right? And uh, so want to help you with that. It's Valentine's week, and we recognize some of you husbands and, and, and some of you, uh, you don't know how to date. You don't know how to, uh, how to show your love and affection, and so here's a great book for you, Dating for Dummies. And then if you just aren't sure what you think or what you know, there's Thinking for Dummies, Okay. And uh, I love the, the title at the top. It says, The Fun and Easy Way to Get Undumb. It just works for some of us. Then turn the uh, page. If you get asked to coach any of the sports, you got coaching basketball for dummies. And that will help as you help the kids. Our, our staff here at church really appreciated this next one. It's ministry for dummies. And uh, I like the little bubble. It says, uh, Skips years of practice and celibacy with the easy-to-use book. I'm not sure what that means. But... Uh, if you notice, I mean, they've gotten some great authors. If you look, it's Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah as the author. And so uh, that's good. And then a, a real one is this book, Christianity for Dummies. And it's a reference guide to help in, in articulating the complicated ideas and even theologies of Christianity and bringing it down to an easy-to-understand way. In Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10, I believe that's what Paul does. In complicated times... 
with complicated matters. In five verses, he brings it down to a place that all of us can understand. And maybe today you find yourself throwing your arms up saying, Christianity is too hard to understand. And how do I know what I should be doing, when I should be doing it? Paul says it's as easy as a two-step process. And that's what I want to look at this morning within our text. So let's follow along. Grab that sermon insert sheet in the uh, bulletin and uh, you can uh, follow along. The first thing I want you to know is it's very simple to follow. Two steps. Number one, Paul says right away in verse eight, look out for spiritual counterfeits. Look out for spiritual counterfeits. In verse eight, Paul grabs our attention and seeks to keep us from the harmful effects of bad doctrine and false teaching. Notice the text says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now let's stop there for a moment and just camp out there for a couple minutes. We need to first of all recognize that in our translations, uh, the ESV, um, the phrase see to it probably doesn't carry the, the thrust of what Paul is trying to articulate. Uh, literally, the word there for see to it is the Greek word blepo. And blepo uh, was used most often in this way. Look out. Beware. Watch out. Take heed. It was one of those words that, that we as parents use and we see our kids running for the street and know that there are cars passing all the time. It's a word that is to arrest the attention of the listener. Paul is wanting to get the attention of the Christians in Colossae to be on the lookout. Now I want you to notice a couple of things about this word that is translated, see to it. It's found in the present tense, which means that we are to be continually even habitually in a lifestyle that is discerning the things that we're taking in as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to also recognize that it is a command. It's not a suggestion. This isn't something that if we want to do it or maybe some of the spiritual elites among us can do it. This is for every one of us to be a part of. We are to be discerning what is being taught to us. It's found in what we call the active voice, which means it's something that you and I have to do. No one else is going to do it for you. It's an act of our will. And so Paul is wanting to stop and grab the attention of all of us in verse 8 and say, you've got a job to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Your job is to be on the lookout for false teaching. Now, why would it be so worked up with regards to false teaching? Notice Paul says later in that verse, that the reason why he's so worked up about it, the reason why he's yelling, look out, is because this warning is there to protect us from being captured. From being captured. Write that down in your outlines. Notice in the text that it's substantiated by the word he uses in the text, be take ca- being taken captive. If you allow yourselves to read too quickly through our passage, you will miss out on the immense danger that Paul has Uh, or is trying, if you will, Paul's trying to uh, let us know is out there. The phrase take captive was literally spoken in ancient Greece of one who kidnaps another with the intent to harm. It was spoken of men who would come into the city, gangs, if you will, that would come into the city and take uh, children and and young people, and uh, they would hunt them down, they would capture them, to put them into slavery. 
Now, this is something as a young boy that I came to recognize. You see, I grew up here in the Fox Valley area, and those who have been around the Fox Valley area uh, will remember the name Melissa Ackerman. Melissa Ackerman was a seven-year-old girl from the town of Samanac, not too far from here. And Melissa and a friend of hers was walking on a gravel road on the northwest side of Samanac. And a a man came, a a middle-aged man came, asking for directions. And while he was asking for directions, he grabbed Melissa's friend and threw her into a car and then went after Melissa and went to grab her. While he was grabbing Melissa, her friend was able to get out of the car and run away, but Melissa wasn't that lucky. Uh, Some weeks later, uh, Melissa's body would be found uh, just outside of the town of Ottawa. And as only an eight-year-old kid myself, I remember in school and I remember the, the police uh, did a, a special training at our community building and our parents drilled it in us. you got to be on alert. This guy wasn't, wasn't found. His name was Brian Dugan and he was a serial kidnapper and, and murderer. And he was on the loose. And as a little kid, I remember uh, being told what we needed to do, never to be by ourselves. And if someone approached us, we needed to be ready. We needed to have, if you will, our spiritual, or our spiritual, our, our antenna up to be able to be ready to discern if someone's good or bad. And that's not going to be always easy, they used to say. They might even try to lure you with all different types of things. What Paul is trying to communicate to us this morning is that you and I need to have our spiritual antenna up. We need to be on the lookout. Now, it doesn't mean that we have a critical spirit. That is that anybody who's around that we just, we we don't have anything to do with them. We push away everything. What Paul is talking about is a discerning spirit. A discerning spirit that is able to keep his eyes about looking around for anything that may cause them harm, uh, giving uh, allegiance, if you will, to that which is good and proven itself to be faithful, and being wary of that which seems suspect. And Paul wants us to know this. Now, why does he want us to be so careful? Number one, they're going to take you captive, and notice how are they going to do it. They're not just going to grab you, as Brian Dugan did, to Melissa. They're going to do it in subtle ways. Notice the text says they're going to do it through empty deceit, through empty deceit. The idea here, empty, literally means there's nothing of value to it. And so what they're talking about has no uh, spiritual value uh, with regards to what they're teaching. The word deceit means they're doing it for hidden reasons, for mischievous or devious reasons. They're doing so uh, maybe to pad their pocketbooks, Maybe they're doing it so they can exert authority over you. They could be doing it for numerous reasons. Whatever the reason is, it's not what they say it is. It's not so per se you can get closer to God. And so we find ourselves in a time, just as in the days of Colossians, that we have people that are out teaching under the the guise, under the, the banner of Jesus and biblical teaching. And you say, well... How are they doing it? Well, they redefine Jesus, just as the Colossian false teachers did. And so we have people that are writing books all over the place or all over uh, different talk shows and that, and they they have great names behind their name, uh, great schools and all of that, and they redefine who Jesus is, and they redefine how we interpret Scripture, and they redefine a new morality uh, for, for people, and they say that which we used to interpret as being sin, now we're evolved and it's no longer a sin. That type of false teaching is alive and well 
in our world as it was in the days of Colossians. Here's the problem. That type of teaching not only captivates people, but it takes them captive. And notice what it does. It corrupts them. It corrupts them. Paul says that there's a specific teaching that is being taught. Notice he says that it's done with empty deceit. But what is taught with empty deceit? It's philosophy. And I want you to, to recognize in the original language there's a, what is called a definite article before the word philosophy. So it isn't that Paul's just against all philosophy. There was a particular philosophy. So in the original it was said, uh, see to it, look out that no one takes you captive by the philosophy. He's speaking specifically to a particular idea or thoughts. Now, at the root of it, philosophy is a love of wisdom. It's the study of abstract and ultimate questions with a pursuit for those answers. Is Paul angry with that? No. But in biblical times, the word philosophy spoke about people who were engaged in endless debates and speculations that led nowhere. And so these group of people would get together and they would begin to philosophize, if you will, about points of doctrine, points of theology, about Jesus. And, and it would lead to nothing. Uh, speaking of, of this type of philosophy during biblical times, G. Campbell Morgan said that philosophy during biblical times had become a quest and never a conquest. Hugh Sylvester said it had shown itself over and over again, that is philosophy, to be full of arguments but lacking in conclusions. It was said of the day that philosophers during that time were people who would talk about something they don't understand and make you think it's your fault. It was described as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black hat which is not there. It was articulated that it was saying what everybody already knew, but in a language that nobody could understand. You see, the problem was, is they liked to hear themselves talk. They liked the idea of trying to make themselves look smart, to make themselves look spiritual. And instead of doing it based on their relationship with Jesus Christ and following the word of God and its truths, they created new ways of, of looking spiritual. They came up with new ideas of what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. And they defined it not on the word of God or the person of Jesus Christ, but they did so under a guise or under a heading called Gnosticism. You see, the, the philosophy that's being spoken about is, is the belief or, or what we call Gnosticism. You'll hear about it on uh, the uh, um, History Channel or the Discovery Channel when they do uh, shows about Jesus or shows about the Bible. They'll no doubt talk at some point about what is called the Gnostic Gospels. And the Gnostic Gospels was these individuals who, who had branched off of Christianity who believed different things than what Orthodox Christianity believed. And there was a lot of writing that went on by these Gnostics who had all kinds of weird ideas about Jesus and ideas about the Christian life that are counterproductive um, for the Christian and counter... Um, they, they run counter to the claims of Christ in the scriptures. Now, what did Gnosticism involve? There were two main tenets of Gnosticism. Number one, the Gnostics believed that everything in the material world was evil. Okay? So everything in the world was bad. Your body was bad. Its appetites, its desires 
were all bad. And there was no way to reform it, no way to redeem it, no way to fix it. And so the only thing that you were supposed to do as a Gnostic Christian was to let your body do what it said to do. Can I tell you, that's alive and well today. Think about the, the thinking that goes on in our culture. And, don't, and, and try to argue with me that Gnosticism isn't alive and well. This is how I feel. This is as if how God has made me, therefore I have to do it, right? This is how I've been called to love. And, and so, that, so then that means I should follow that because that's what my body is saying. Our culture says over and over again, if it feels good, do it. No matter what it does to your body, no matter what it does to your relationship with God or your relationship with others. And so Gnostic said, here's the thing. Your body is no good. The only thing that matters is the spirit. And so 1 John, if you read 1 John, you have to read it through a Gnostic's understanding. He's battling Gnosticism. And he says, how can you say you love God and live in immorality? How can you say you love God and, and keep sinning? The reason why was because the Gnostics would come in on Sunday morning after living a life of debauchery and immorality. They would come in on Sunday and they would sit in their seat and say, I love God. And John says, you can't do that. That's, that's a bunch of false teaching. It's garbage. You can't say that you love God and hate your brother. You cannot separate that which is physical and that which is spiritual. You can't say you got this great relationship with God when you've got a terrible relationship with everyone else. And so what Gnostics would do is they would funnel the person and work of Jesus Christ through that. And so here's what would happen. They would say there's no way that Jesus could be God and put on flesh. There's no way. Why would pure God, perfect God, put on sinful flesh? Now we know that not to be true. We know that that is the absolute beauty and, and mystery of the virgin birth. That Christ put on flesh, a, a, a pure flesh, an untainted flesh, that did not carry as we do the sin of, of Adam and Eve due to the fall. They would say, even if that was the case, why in the world would Jesus die a physical death? How could a physical death, the shedding of physical blood, produce something of spiritual value for you and I? So Jesus didn't die on the cross. There was no need for Jesus to, to uh, as Savior, to be dead, to be buried, and to rise again. Why would Jesus rise again only to put his spirit back into an earthly vessel that has no value to it whatsoever? So Paul says, notice in the text, the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. And God was pleased for it. So when you read those things, if you don't understand Gnosticism, you miss out on it. You won't understand 1 John. You won't understand some of Ephesians, most of Colossians. You won't get it because you're, for, you're not getting the reason why Paul is addressing it. The whole reason why Paul talks about in the flesh, in the flesh, in the flesh in chapter 1 is because he's wanting to articulate Gnostics. Jesus was the God-man. He took on flesh. He made his dwelling among us. And he was full of grace and truth, fully God and fully man. Not to be mixed, not to be adulterated in any way. He is the God-man. The second thing that Gnostics believed was that there was this secret. Now, nobody knows exactly what the secret was. But it was this hidden knowledge 
that only a select few could understand. And if you were enlightened to this special truth, you had this secret that you were given that made you a, a superior in the Christian realm. You had become one who uh, was a spiritual elite. And what that meant was, is now you were close with God. If you did not have it, then you were far from God. And so the Colossian people find themselves wondering, what, what is the dichotomy between material life and spiritual life? And what about this spiritual knowledge? What am I supposed to do with it? Well, we're going to learn next week, and we've been kind of alluding to it as Paul has over and over again. Well, starting next week, we're going to see these Gnostics break into two camps. Uh, The first camp is those that say, okay, because the material is bad and the spirit is good, we need to shun and, and, and remove ourselves from everything in this material world. And so you're going to see in the text that then what it means is, is, uh, is disciplining the body, flogging the body in, in severe ways. That, that as New Testament Christians, circumcision was to become uh, a, a, a part of the process again. The issue of baptism was supposed to be important. There was the forbidding of, of eating and drinking certain things. The following of, of, of Sabbath moons and, and festivals. All of these strict uh, ideas. Uh, even some had given away all types of sexual activity, even in the realm of marriage. Because they saw that, that act of intimacy between a husband and, his, and a wife as being totally sinful and totally um, separated from God. And so Paul says, it ain't that. That's not Christianity, brothers and sisters. On the other side, there were those who were living indulgent lives, who were sinning in all different kinds of ways, and yet still said they wanted or they had a relationship with God. And because of these two broad spectrums that we'll see over the next couple weeks, Gnosticism was wreaking havoc within the Colossian church. That the people in the church under the leadership of Epaphras were saying, wait a minute, I don't know which way's up anymore. I don't know if I'm supposed to be following rules or I'm supposed to be just living for myself and just doing whatever feels right. Someone help. And Paul comes and he says, it's neither of the two. What it means is, is that we follow Jesus Christ. We follow him. We found our life on him. Well, before you think that this issue of Gnosticism, this doctrine of Gnosticism was something that was uh, around 2,000 years ago and no longer impacts us today, I want you to know if you believe that, you've got another thing coming. Can I tell you, just as Gnosticism was wreaking havoc, taking people captive and, and, and corrupting people in the Colossian church, This may offend some of you. I think it's doing the same thing in the Village Bible Church today. And I think it's happening in evangelicalism as well. Some years ago, I read a book called The Late Great Evangelical Church. The Late Great Evangelical Church. It was written by a man named Donner. And and he writes that this age-old heresy of Gnosticism is alive and well today in the church, and it, and it is wreaking havoc within our world of evangelicalism. Our Orthodox Christians aren't struggling with that, whether uh, Russian or Greek Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholics aren't struggling with this. This is our issue. Gnosticism is alive and well in the evangelical world, and, and he breaks it down in this way. So let's take a look. There's six things that he says Gnosticism did then 
and is doing today. First of all, Gnostics believed that Christians should withdraw from culture. That Christians should withdraw from culture. Gnostics said, because I am a follower of God and the material world is bad, then I need to withdraw from everything in the material world. And so what we as evangelicals have done, listen, in the last generation what we have done is we have removed ourselves from this world. We have wholesaled the phrase of scripture that says we are to be in the world, not of the world. And some of us in this place have wholesaled our relationship with the world because here's why. And I get it, but it's, it's Gnostic in its understanding. Because the world's bad. Because it's full of sinners, I, who am a Christian, have to separate myself from it. I don't want my kids involved in it. I don't want to be a part of it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove myself and and all of my life from it. And so the world is a necessary evil that I should be a part of. Listen to me. The Bible never communicates that. The Bible says that God is building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are not to run away from this world. We are to engage in it as salt and light, preserving it and saturating it in such a way that they can see Christ in all that we do. Gnostics were saying, get out of the world. And some of us have bought into that as well, that our place isn't in the world. It's outside of it. And so we create these Christian bubbles where we, we create a bubble that, that, and I get, it's protective, But it's Gnostic. It's not biblical. Number two, notice in there that it's a limited view of redemption. What we have is an idea of redemption. The Gnostics said the way that you were redeemed is you got that secret. You got that one thing. And once you had that one thing, it didn't matter what you did with that one thing. You had it. You could lord it over everybody that you had it and they didn't. About 50, 60 years ago, What became big in American culture, nowhere else in the world, was this idea that if I made a decision for Jesus Christ, if I prayed a prayer for Jesus, then I'm all good. I got my fire insurance. I don't have to worry about the the flames of hell anymore. And what we see is study after study says that people make a decision about Jesus and many of them never walk in that ever again. And so what happens is, is we've bought into it. And so we're all excited, and please don't get me wrong, we're all excited that our children pray this prayer. They're in, it's all good, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. And little do we know that the idea behind redemption is not a once-in-my-life decision about Jesus, but it's that redemption changes everything of who I am, that I'm never the same again. And I'm so holistically changed and and transformed that the way I view life, the way I live life, the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I I, I engage in relationships is never the same. I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as evangelicals, we've got it down to a sound bite. You raise your hand, you walk the trail, you're in. Brothers and sisters, that's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. Number three, he says that there is a reductionist view of theology. Do you know that for the evangelical, theology is not something that we're all too concerned about? That we don't really care about theology. But we will say, well, I don't, 
I don't really need to know all that stuff. That's boring to me. That isn't important. Uh, we have this idea that theology is something that weighs us down. Really all it is, and listen to me, all it is is a relationship. It's more than a relationship, brothers and sisters. Notice that this relationship that we have involves more than him just being our friend. Notice in the text, verse 10 says, that he is the head of all rule and authority. Yeah, one part of it is that Jesus is your friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. But let us not forget that same friend is also the king of kings and the authority above all authorities. And what we need to recognize is, as Mark Knoll so aptly put, there is a scandal for the evangelical mind. And here's the scandal. There is no evangelical mind. We're not thinking. We're not using our heads. You say, well, I I'm not, I'm not uh, an intellectual. Let me tell you what Jesus said to us. He said the greatest of the commandments was to love our Lord God with all our heart, soul, and strength. We forget mind. And as evangelicals, we've thrown out our mind and we buy into this bubblegum Facebook banner theology and it's a bunch of muckety-muck hallmark garbage. It's Gnostic. It's not biblical. Number four, we have a compartmentalized, part-time approach to Christian living. Gnostics believed you could live Monday through Saturday like hell. And on Sunday, as long as you dressed up and you played the part, you were all good. Hmm, sure does sound like 21st century Christianity, doesn't it? The Christianity that we buy into says, as long as I make a date on Sunday morning for Jesus, I'm all good. And what we've done with Jesus is we've done what many of you do with your dogs this morning, and that is you put them in the laundry room and you say, hey dogs, this is where you have to stay. Because if you get out, it's going to wreak havoc in my life. And so what we do with Jesus is say, okay, I'll find a nice evangelical church, I'll go there on Sundays, and that Sunday experience will have zero effect in the life that I live Monday through Saturday. That that same involvement that I have with Jesus on Sunday will have no impact to the things that I watch, to the, to the books that I read, to the um, decisions that I make, to the way I use my money, to the way that I involve myself in my parenting and in my relationship with my spouse. It has nothing to do with it. So there's a Sunday morning part of you and an everyday other part of you. Here's the problem. You look different from the world in only this way. You hide it a little better than the rest of the world does. That's it. We hide it a little better. We're involved in the same things. We're looking at the same things on the internet. We're reading the same things. I was blown away by uh, the fight that's going on between Christian women and uh, of Christian women that are, are fighting on Facebook right now, and some of the posts I've seen uh, on whether a Christian should be looking forward to the Fifty Shades of Grey movie, and women that say I'm a Christian, and I, I'm a Christian, and and it just. There's redemption in it. There's, there's love in it, how she loves, yeah? That's Gnostic. That's not biblical. We compartmentalize our lives, and we have this part-time view of Christianity. Paul says it's got to go. Number five, an overemphasis on individualism. Gnostics believed you were on your own. 
And so if you got the secret, you're all good. But no one's going to help you with that secret. you got to get it on your own. And here's the thing. As evangelicals, we're all about the individual as well. It's all about us. One of the things I have uh, my in-laws, devout and, and godly uh, mom and dad who, uh, who are Roman Catholics, and one of the things they will tell me all the time is we just don't get it with you evangelicals. Why do you guys change churches all the time? Why can't you stay in one spot? That's just, and, and they'll say there's a lot of issues with the Catholics. A lot of issues. And I've got some issues with the Catholics as well. But, but one of the things that they question us on, which I have to go point, check, match, they got it, is we change churches all the time. And why? Because it's about me. The pastor didn't say what I needed, or they didn't do what I wanted. They didn't have the programs that I needed, or this, this, and this. And we, and we bounce around. We change churches like we change our socks. And what we need to recognize is, is all of that is, is a Gnostic understanding that the Christian life is about me, not about Christ. And we need to see that it's alive and well today. The next one. Go ahead and flip that. It's the marginalization of the church and its mission in the world. Every study tells us that America has a whole lot of Christians living in it. They say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, followers of his word. They believe in the tenets of Christianity, that they've had this reborn or rebirth experience of being born again. They've got it. They've checked it off the list. Here's the problem. The more Christians we have, the less effective we've become. We're not impacting the world like we used to. And what the idea is, is that we believe, listen, we believe that the church's job is to be the safe refuge for us, that the world can't come in. And what we're worried about is that the world is collapsing in on us. They're taking away our liberties. Let me tell you something. The early church was better off when it had no freedoms, not all freedoms. Because it understood, man, we're, we're going to be salt and light in this world. We are going to go hell or high water. We're going to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And they impacted the world for the sake of the gospel. You and I are here because of it. And so we need to recognize this morning, and I could go on and on. Read the book. It's an effective treatment of what's going on. You will learn more and more that Gnosticism, that philosophy that was alive and well in Colossians, is alive and well today. It's in your Christian bookstores. It's in your Christian radio. It's all over the place. And what I struggle with is when I share this with people, they get mad at me and they say, well, you're just being legalistic. You, you're just, you're just you know, trying to create a straw man. If you understand Gnosticism, you will see it is all over our Christianity today. And Paul says, rid yourselves of it. Well, how do we do it? How do we rid ourselves of it? Paul makes it very simple. Remember, this is Christianity for dummies. He wants to take that which is complicated and make it simple. And here's a simple thing. You live each day for Christ. Live each day for Christ. How do you make sure you don't fall for this garbage? Notice what he says. Therefore, verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul wants to make it simple. How do you live for Christ? Notice, you walk with him. So uh, the walk with Christ is a walk that is close to him. Notice this word walk. Remember, we want to keep it simple. And so how do we understand this? Well, first of all, the word walk 
is a present tense word, which means that it's habitual. As we walk, we don't stop walking. It's a command. When we receive Christ, it doesn't say just believe in Jesus, sign your name on the dotted line, and you're in. What it says is when you give your life to Christ, it is meaning a perpetual and habitual walk with Christ. This walk, notice a couple things that we know of walking in our own physical lives. Number one, it doesn't mean you have to have arrived when you get there. But that walking with Jesus Christ means taking one step at a time with him. Don't get me wrong. I get that for our younger believers, we're going to weeble wobble a little bit. I get that at times our walk is going to be, if you will, handicapped because of a temptation or because of a trial in our lives. I I get it. There's a new sense of, of understanding walking this week with a bad knee. I get it. I understand that sometimes we're going to be a little more, if you will, handicapped in that process. But notice a couple other things about walking. Walking implies an action. The Christian life isn't something we do in our head. It involves our entire being. It's something that we are called to do every day of our lives. The other thing you need to understand about walking with the Christian life is, let's say... That the Christian life is summed up of me walking with Christ from the pulpit to the piano. And I start walking. And as I walk to the piano, notice what I'm able to do as you can in the Christian life. I can turn around and say, I've made some progress from the pulpit. So just as you've received Christ, now walk in him. Let me ask you a question this morning, Village Bible Church. Can you see progress from the day that you received Jesus Christ? Can you say, look, I now say no to sin as I've gotten closer to the piano than I did when I was closer to the pulpit? Can I see now steps of maturity in my life that allow me to look back and say, wow, I I have come a long way. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm a lot farther from where I was to where I'm going. Let me tell you something. If there's no room, if you've said you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for some time, and there's no room from where you received him to where you're at right now, i got to be honest with you, you need to question your salvation. Notice you say, well, Tim, how can you say that? Well, first, uh, the first chapter of Colossians says in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ now has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We like that. He's made us holy. But notice verse 23 starts with the word if. Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard. What does that look like? Walking with Jesus. It's progress. One step at a time. Notice. One other thing about walking, it involves perseverance. Let me tell you, I cannot stand here and say, watch me walk if I'm standing. And so what it implies is I I, I need to be moving and I need to continue to move. The Christian life is a persevering walk with God. It's not always easy. We're going to stumble and Christ is going to forgive us and and, and draw us back up. But we got to get back on our feet and we need to continue walking with him. It needs to be a part of every aspect of our life. I cannot say my legs are walking but my torso is staying back. I can't do that. 
It involves our entire being, all that we are. So Paul wants us to know, what's the Christian life all about? How do we make sure that we live godly lives? We walk closely with Jesus. Number two, it involves working out our faith. As we walk, there are things that we're going to do. Notice Paul uses three examples. Write these down. Number one, he gives an agricultural example. He says you need to be rooted in him. We recognize that no plant, no tree will ever live long without a proper root system. That, that rooting uh, is something that allows us to withstand the storms of life. That it allows us to withstand the enemies of life. So when the dry seasons come, the Christian has firmly established itself. As Psalm chapter 1 says, we have planted our, our roots near streams of water. That we are nurtured in every way, firmly rooted. And so as the, storm, as the um, dry seasons come, we can withstand the scorching heat that comes because we're rooted in Jesus Christ. Notice when the storms of life come, the winds beat down on us and the the rain comes and, and we bend. But listen, a rooted Christian will not break. He will not break because he's rooted in Christ. Notice the second thing that Paul gives. He gives an agricultural one. Then he gives an architectural lesson. He says we are being built upon him. And so here we are, we are, we are being built. Understand that this is again found in the present tense. This building process isn't done. Paul tells the Philippian church that we know that he who began a good work in us is faithful to see it to completion. And so right now you're a 10-story building. God's not done. He's going to keep building you until you reach the clouds. He's going to continue to do that. Now here's the thing. When we understand the building... God's going to create some magnificent buildings for his sake. But here's the temptation we have. As God does this building work in us, it's easy for us to take the glory. It's easy for us as as we become mature in Christ, people say, wow, what a steadfast individual that Timbadol is. Wow, that guy is really smart. That guy really knows his theology. And and it can be easy for, for those who are mature in Christ to say, hey, look at me. Wow, I carry around a name tag. I'm the important one. I'm the spectacular one. I'm the magnificent one. Let me give you an assignment. Next time you're driving downtown on uh, um, the Eisenhower Expressway, roll down your window. And as you roll down the window, especially when you get close to downtown, you're going to hear people talking. Except it's not humans. It's going to be the buildings talking. And listen really well because you'll hear the Willis Tower say, Look at me. I'm taller than everybody. Look how majestic I am. And then you'll hear the Hancock building say, well, I'm not as great as him, but but I'm catching up. And then there's the Trump Tower that's a little shorter than the other two. Hey, I'm getting there, and if I just had the hairpiece of my owner, I'd be taller than all of you. And they're fighting among each other, and you're going to hear that. No, you're not going to hear a single thing. Because the only things that buildings speak of is not the greatness of what they are but the ones who built them. And when you look at a building, you marvel, not at Willis Tower and like, wow, Willis Tower. If you really think about it, you marvel at the men and women who built Willis Tower. And so the next time you think that you've come a long way, as the cigarette commercial used to say, you've come a long way, baby. I think it was Virginia Slims. I'm surprised I even know that. But 
But when you think you've come a long way and you think you deserve a plaque and you deserve all this, remember that when Paul says you're being built up, the only one who receives the glory is the builder. He receives the glory. And you just stand there and let people marvel at what? At what the builder has made in you. You're just a bunch of steel. You're just a bunch of material that the master has fashioned together into a beautiful structure for his glory. Number three, he gives an academic lesson. An academic lesson. While there are many false teachers out there, he reminds us that what we shouldn't do is become vigil anti-Christians in the sense that we just then, we, we become our own learners. Notice what Paul says. He says that we've been established in the faith as, we, as you were taught. This is a shout out to the Colossians to show love and compassion and a level of submission to right and godly teachers. It's, a, it's an affirmation for Epaphras who is a godly teacher who's wrestling for their sake, that he's not a false teacher, he's a good teacher, so be willing as you are good Bereans, as you seek out the word of God, whether it's with Tim or with your small group leader or, or the Apostle Paul himself, that we always seek to know that what we are teaching is right, and if it is, they deserve honor. Like a good teacher who has taught you something well. This last week I, I was at my high school playing basketball. That's the reason for this gimpy leg now. And, and one of my teachers was there. And it was so good to come back. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't learn a lot in high school. That's my own fault. But that teacher bought into me and poured into me. And, and I had the opportunity to say, you know what? Hey, teacher, you meant a world to me. And the things you taught me and the, and the way you modeled life for me is stuff that I still haven't forgotten. And Paul wants us to recognize that there are good teachers out there and honor them and, and bless them and, and be a ministry to them because they need to be faithful and continuing to do it. As they teach you, you are then to go teach others. Well, how does he wrap all this up? Notice when we're walking close with God, when we're working out our faith, knowing that God's doing the work in us, the only thing we can do is worship him. Notice in verse 9, he addresses this whole Gnostic issue about who Jesus is. He says, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity, of the Godhead, literally, dwells bodily. That man, Jesus Christ, had all divinity and deity in him. And the Bible says in Colossians 1.19 that it pleased the Father to do so. You see, once again, and let's not forget this, Jesus is not some emanation that emits some sort of godness to man. He isn't the first created being, a little greater than us, but less than God, as Jehovah's Witness believe. He isn't a man who did a really, really good job here on earth, who became a god as the Church of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons believe. Jesus Christ is all God, and in all God's entirety, everything that God is, Jesus is in bodily form. And notice what the text says, he reigns supreme with all authority and rule. So here's the thing. What should our response be? Our response should be one singular thing. Thanksgiving. Notice in verse six, we are or seven, we are to abound with thanksgiving. 
Now, why are we to be thankful? Our reasoning for being thankful is, is a couple things. Number one, our reason for being thankful is that Jesus Christ has saved us. When was the last time you invested some time in prayer and you just are reminded, as Colossians 1 taught us, that I was sinful and Christ came. He died a sinner's debt and death for me. Wow. Thank you. Jesus, you didn't have to do that. But thank you. Thank you for giving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for giving me a new spirit. Thank you for interceding on my behalf. Thank you for giving me the Holy Spirit who leads and guides and and, and moves me to all truth. Lord, thank you for the inheritance that you've given me in heaven. Thank you I'm no longer a slave but now a son. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You see, you want to know your spiritual temperature? Paul says it can be gauged on our gratitude. Do we have gratitude for the abounding love of Jesus Christ in his forgiveness for us? Number two, we need to be thankful for how he's moving in our lives today. As, as God gives you steps of faith, As he grows your faith step by step as you walk with him, you need to be thankful. Don't look at everybody else and say, what's their problem? Why aren't they figuring it out? Why am I so much smarter or greater than them? No, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are changing me. You're transforming me. Thank you for the opportunity to pour into others so that they might see what I too have seen, not something kept in secret, but something that needs to bear fruit in the entire world. You want to follow Christ? You want it to be simple? Look out for false teaching and live each day walking with Christ in a close, intimate walk with him, taking one step at a time. And as we do that, the Lord says we will be established in verse 7. We won't have to worry about the earthquakes that come, about the troubles that come our way, the temptation, because God will will grow in us the ability to say no to sin, to live life in this world without being involved in it altogether in all our decisions, to, to be salt and light there, and to be able to teach and to train others to do likewise. It's Christianity for dummies. It's Christianity made simple. While it doesn't address everything, it addresses the necessity of what it means to walk and talk with Jesus each and every day. Let's pray, God, that we can do so. Father God, we come before you now and we thank you for your spirit. Your spirit that leads us to all truth, guides us and convicts us of our sin. And now, Lord, we ask that this couple verses that we've studied this morning would change us. It would transform us. Not so that we can put into our knowledge bank more information, but that this will change not only our spiritual lives, but but our physical lives as well. That it would change all of us. Lord, I pray for those who have received Christ as Savior, thinking that's all they had to do, that they would see today in a new way that it is a walk each and every day with you, our Lord. Lord, we're going to need strength to do it. And so we pray a special uh, just outpouring of your spirit to fill us. Lord, that we would uh, shun evil deeds. That we would not pursue the gods of this world. 
that we would give ourselves wholly to you and you alone because you're the preeminent one. You're, you're the, the one in whom all deity rests. And, and because of that, we worship you and, and we adore you and we give our lives, all of us, to you. Because as you said in the Sermon on the Mount, when we put our lives on your shore rock, nothing will knock us down. And so, Lord, I pray we'll live in victory this week because we built our lives on you, the rock. That whatever comes this week, we will be holy and righteous and above reproach because we continue in the faith walking with you. Give us that strength this week to do that. So now, Lord, as we leave this place, let us fellowship and rejoice. Let thanksgiving abound in us, remembering what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And let us be contagious with that as we fellowship with others now. Lead us home, Lord, in a couple moments in peace and safety, and bring us back again to our week's activities. Rejoicing in what you have taught us. In Christ's name we pray. And all of us say, amen.